0: The year is 1975. Picture, if you will, Alan Middleton, a young man fondled by the hands of fate. While joyriding on a remote mountain road in his Uncle's 74 Camaro, a fateful collision with a truck careened him off the road, resulting in a fiery explosion that revealed a shocking truth. Beneath the tattered flesh caused by Alan's injuries, lurk the exoskeleton of a Latverian Doombot. Realizing that his life up to this point had been a lie, the teenage construct traveled to Latveria where he confronted his insidious maker. Taking pity on him, Doom revealed to Alan that he had been the first of a series of prototype life model infiltrator Doombots, which had developed a fatal flaw. Their high-level machine intelligence coupled with their advanced empathic circuits rendered them all too human, incapable of the ruthlessness and blind obedience Doom required. In a rare gesture of mercy, Doom inserted the baby bot into the American adoption system and promptly forgot about him. Twice rejected and now deported from Latveria by a creator who despised being reminded of failure. Alan set out to prove himself worthy of his father. Returning to the States and following in the footsteps of doom, Alan was seduced by academic life and proceeded to collect PhDs like a sugar addict collects lollipops on Halloween. After taking the world of science by storm with his theory of relative geekery, a scientific marvel that made Einstein's stuff look like cheap pizza recipes, Alan, with the aid of his enhanced onboard voice modulator, perfected a science even doom-coveted. Radiotronic audio wave mind modulation, the ultimate form of mind control, a science he termed doom-casting. The Latverian monarch at last saw potential in his now wizened construct and presented Alan with a test. Procure a 25-cent pristine copy of Fantastic Four Volume 1 Number 5 from a quarter bin at a comic convention. Jumping at the chance to perform this impossible feat, Alan headed to the nearest con, dragging two captive mutants along, Longshot and Domino, whom he had abducted from the future and placed under his thrall with his mind modulator. A story for another day. In the presence of these two lucky but unlucky do-gooders, Alan quickly found a near-mint copy of said issue in the first quarter bin he perused. He reunited with his father... And has been cruising the radio waves ever since, soothing humanity's resistance to tyranny with his calm, reassuring voice, gently spreading the doctrine of doom. And that, weird listeners, is the origin of Professor Allen, otherwise known as the podcasting polymath, the Latvian lector, the academic ace. Yet one name rings louder than the rest: Doomspeak. <laughs> There you go, Professor Allen, your very own Bronze Age alter ego.
1: This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. But first, big thanks to Herman Lowe of the podcasts Into the Weird and Long Box of Darkness for providing that amazing Bronze Age origin for me. That bit was included near the end of Episode 5 of Into the Weird, which, as of this recording, is the most recent thing in their feed. Again, Herman, awesome, greatly appreciated, and lovely listener. If you don't listen to Long Box of Darkness or Into the Weird, you're missing a couple of terrific podcasts. Thanks again. And now, we return to our regularly scheduled quarter bin podcast, where in every episode I summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue for my comic book collection, which I will often select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 129th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Marvel Superheroes Magazine number 3 from Marvel Comics, of course, cover dated December 1994. This issue features full-length reprints of Daredevil, 161, Fantastic Four, 234, Incredible Hulk, 316, and Iron Man, 117. For coverage of issues 1 and 2 of the magazine, which featured the prior two issues of all of those titles, refer to Quarterman Episodes 109 and 119. The reviews and discussions of each of these for full-length issues will of course be slightly shorter than the traditional full-length reviews and discussions that issues usually get on the show. The goal is for this to not be four times as long as an average episode. But since it is going to be on the long side, let's do some feedback here as well. We heard from Jeremiah Jones-Goldstein on a range of podcasts here on the network, and he had some specific Quarterbin comments. I listened to Quarterbin Podcast 116, Captain Victory, and Episode 110, The Eternals. Both were excellent I very much enjoyed the reviews. You have a real talent for bringing the comics to life. Thank you, Jeremiah. I first got into Kirby, he says, reading The Fourth World. And now when I find Kirby at a good price, I usually grab it. Because no matter what it is, it's sure to be interesting. I picked up a couple issues of 2001 A Space Odyssey comic, and wow, is that a trip. Yes, that is exactly what I've heard about that title. I had a great time listening, and if I ever find issues of Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers in the dollar bins, I'll be sure to check them out. You do that, Jeremiah, although that is a little expensive for my taste, But, hey, you do you. And certainly let us know if you manage to find some more good issues for cheap. Jeremiah also thanked me for shouting out to his blog, which can be found at comicscomicscomics.blog. On episode 127, we talked about Spidey and Captain Britain meeting in an issue of Marvel Team-Up, and Luke, Jack and Eddie, had a few things to say about that. Professor, just finished listening to you talk about the U.S. debut of Captain Britain. I do not have this issue, but I'm pretty sure I have the Marvel Tales reprint of it, which I am sure I pulled out of a discount bin, so we're in a similar boat as far as this story and that is always good to hear from a listener. (laughs) I became familiar with Brian Braddock, thanks to the Alan Davis Excalibur, but eventually did circle back to some of his original adventures, which are pretty fun if you can track them down. This issue is not a Marvel classic, but it is a fun read and has a very memorable cover. I always found the idea of Peter and Brian being roommates very amusing. I picture in my mind some random prowler sneaking into their apartment, and getting way more than he bargained for. Yeah, I could see that happening. It also reminds me of how when Jean Grey moved out of the X-Mansion and got an apartment, her roommate was Misty Knight. Another apartment for any would-be cat burglar to avoid. I guess Chris Claremont liked that conceit enough to reuse it. Remember, it's not stealing if you steal it from yourself. I like that this issue includes Brian's choice between the sword and the amulet. In other stories, we would not only be introduced to an entire Captain Britain Corps, who safeguards the British Isles across the multiverse, but also see what happened to those who chose the sword or the path of might. We first saw this with the Kelsey Lee Captain Britain in the tail end of Avengers Volume 3. She is now known as Lionheart but this also played out much more broadly in the pages of New Excalibur, also by Claremont. Thanks for the episode, and looking forward to whatever else comes down the pipeline, Luke. Thank you, my friend. It's always good to hear from you. And last episode, we covered the last days of the JSA. Chris Ouellette from Bizarre Manor said it was a fun episode, plus I got a dramatic reading of our witty Facebook banner. Everything I could want in a podcast. Gregorujo of the Secret Wars and Beyond podcast admitted that he purchased this comic at the same time as the final issue of the Squadron Supreme miniseries. I felt depressed for the remainder of the day. Yeah, Greg, I can definitely see that. Siskoid said this was one of his favorite JSA stories. Kyle Benning said it was a great episode, which was very kind. Luke Giaconetti said that this was one of the stories that came out before he was reading DC Comics, but always had heard great things about it. That was a great quarter-bin fine, Professor. Yes, my friend, it was. Likes and retweets and shares for the last episode came from many of the fine folks already mentioned, and also Mike Carlyle from the Crap Box of the Son of Cthulhu blog, Vinny the III, Al Sedano of Resurrections the Warlock and Thanos Podcast Clinton from Coffee and Comics Paul from The Collected Edition Gene Hendricks Comics in the Golden Age Mike Peacock from Justice's First On Sean from Secret Wars and Beyond Paul Hicks of Waiting for Doom Robert Ludwig the most sane man among us Paul the book guy Jared Albrecht the yard sale artist my fellow Ohioan Rob from the Tim Drake Robin Podcast Jim the Canada Daredevil, Pat from the Longbox Crusade, Trennus Magnus himself, David Ace Gutierrez, Karen from Between the Pages where pop culture and food meet, Old School Ross, the warm and kind Sutherlands, and Laurel at Mountainflower One from the brand spanking new Huntress podcast, which you should check out. Thank you for all of that. It is very appreciated. And on to the main event, Marvel Superheroes Magazine number 3 had an original cover price of $2.95, meaning I got an excellent 91.5% discount on the book. I nabbed issues 1 through 5 of this title a few years back from my LCS, World's Greatest Comics, and I'm going to cover those on every 9 episode. As we mentioned, we've covered the previous issues on 109 and 119, then here on 129, then we'll wrap it up with 139 and 149. By wrap it up, I mean even though the series ran six issues, I only scored the first five from the quarter bins. The cover of this issue, Marvel Superheroes Magazine number 3, by Michael Golden, shows Iron Man ripping up some mechanical structures while fighting Spymaster. Among the electronic debris at his feet are three television-style... Monitors, all at cockeyed angles. One of those shows the FF. One shows an angry Hulk. I know. Is there any other kind? And one shows Daredevil and Black Widow. It is an action-packed cover. It's dramatic. It's overall pretty good. Now, back in episode 109, I agonized about the format for these number nine episodes and settled on the idea of selecting one of the stories in the issue as the lead story, which will get a little bit fuller type of examination, closer to the regular quarter bin treatment, with the other three being sort of the backup stories, if you will, in terms of coverage, not getting quite as much podcast time as that main story. And I wanted to, to rotate which title got that, you know, sort of lead story status. And the first time around, it was the Iron Man story, Iron Man 115. Uh, that was my favorite of the four. And then last time it was the Hulk story. So that left for this episode of the FF and Daredevil. And of those, my favorite was the Daredevil story. And we will start right there, right after this.
2: Hi, I'm John Wilson. And I'm Michael Kaiser. And we're the hosts of the podcast, Make Ours Marvel. You know, here we are in 2018, 10 years into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. Can you believe we live in a world where everyone's old Aunt Petunia knows who Iron Man is? It's crazy, right? So, to celebrate, we're on our mission to explore the roots of the Marvel Universe. You know you've thought about it. Some of you may have even done it. And now we're going to do it, too. We're diving back into the long boxes of Marvel's history and podcasting our way through the whole universe. All of it. Every superhero issue. And if I can convince Mike, we'll even do Sergeant Fury. And it's not going to be one issue per episode. That'd take forever. <laughs> it's still going to take forever. But no, we're going to talk about as many comics as we can in an hour. Yep, an hour and, you know, maybe a little change. Every week, Marvel Comics. So it'd be super cool if you came along for the ride. Look for us every Friday at MakeOursMarvel.com. That's MakeOursMarvel.com or on iTunes and all the other usual podcasty places. And if you want to read along with us and send us your thoughts, we might even read emails. So until Avengers Infinity War gets a spin off Warlock and the Infinity Watch TV show, make, make Ours
1: Marvel. Marvel. And we're back, and we're looking at the story that first appeared in Daredevil 161, originally. Cover dated November 1979. To Dare the Devil was written by Roger McKenzie and drawn and inked by a little artistic team I like to call Frank Miller and Klaus Janson. For this story, and for all the stories in this episode, both the Marvel Wikia and comic book DB were used as jumping-off points for crafting these story synopses. Now, to remind you of where we are from last issue, Bullseye has taken Black Widow, and Daredevil is hot on his trail. For this issue, we start with the D-Train, lumbering south from the Bronx, rumbling through the boroughs of Manhattan and Brooklyn to its final stop at Coney Island. For some, it is a trip to a make-believe wonderland of thrills, chills, and spills. But for others, it's the end of the line. A terrified Turk returns to Eric Slaughter, or as he calls him, Mithothotha. I'm not going to call him that, however. But know that whenever Turk speaks, that is how he speaks. Turk looks like he's seen a ghost, or a devil. Slaughter correctly guesses That Daredevil has only set Turk free to follow him to Coney Island, which is closed for the season. When Daredevil appears, right on Turk's heels, Slaughter orders his men to attack. But they are quickly defeated. Your paid muscle doesn't mean a thing to me, old man, and neither do you. As he asks the old man where to find Bullseye, he is alerted by the sound of a motor behind him. Daredevil turns toward the Astro Tower, which has begun to rise. Daredevil quickly discovers that Bullseye has snipers placed nearby. It's a trap. We all knew it was a trap. Even DD must have known it was a trap. They fire on him while he makes his way to the roller coaster, which is coming closer and closer to its target, a figure tied to the tracks. At the last moment, as the coaster continues to clack, clack, clack down those tracks, Daredevil ignores the figure on the tracks was subsequently struck by the roller coaster, what is Daredevil doing? But as that body hits the ground, we learn that it was in fact a dummy or mannequin made to resemble the Black Widow. In the park's arcade, Bullseye is amazed that Daredevil saw through this ruse. He knew, somehow, some way. he knew. But that doesn't change a thing. He still has her. The widow is the flame, and Daredevil is the moth drawn to that flame. Meanwhile, Ben Yurik pays a visit to Fogwell's gym in his personal quest to uncover Daredevil's identity. The gym was home to Jack Murdoch prior to his death. Yurik talks with KO, the janitor, who confirms that Murdoch was killed by the fixer when he wouldn't throw a fight. He also receives. A significant piece of info that as a child Matt had the iconic name a daredevil. It's another fact to what will undoubtedly prove the most sensational story of Ben Yurick's 20 year journalistic career. Back at Coney Island, Bullseye's gang are messing with the Black Widow, who is tied to the knife thrower's target board, and he's throwing knives at her. They think I'm helpless but I'm the Black Widow. She manages to manipulate her bonds so that the knife thrower actually sets her free, slicing through her bonds, and sets to taking down Bullseye's goons. You try to push me to the breaking point. I don't like that. I don't like your hired muscle, and I don't like you. As Bullseye begins to fight back, Daredevil, loops him from behind and gives him a few cracks and a thack and a spack, while Black Widow is taking on all of the bad guy's crew. Widow has never seen Daredevil. So grim, so cold-blooded, he's not the same man I used to know. They have ended up near the midway area of the park, and Bullseye fires baseballs at Daredevil, saying that he has taken everything from D.D. except his life. With my infallible aim, anything I touch is a deadly weapon, he says, explaining his powers. You don't have a chance. But Daredevil has beaten him before and expects to beat him again. But Bullseye just keeps coming at him. I want to hear you beg, Daredevil, to admit I'm the better man. I'll admit you're a lot of things, Bullseye, but mostly you're a fool. Bullseye grabs a handgun, points it at D.D. But he can't pull the trigger? The villain suffers a nervous breakdown of sorts. And then Slaughter refuses to finish the job because Daredevil has earned his respect. Daredevil and the widow leave with Bullseye's wrists bound and turn him over to the police. The heroes leave looking at Slaughter saying that nobody is going to stop him. We'll meet again, Daredevil, Slaughter says. Things will be different then. Count on it, Slaughter. Count on it. The end. Now these Daredevil stories have almost been my favorite read each of the last few episodes, especially last time, with Bullseye going up against Black Widow. But I had a feeling that each one was getting better as Miller and Jansen got their feet under them and the creative team really hit their stride here. And uh, that was definitely the case. Each one of these has been a bit better than the one before. Now I, I joked last weekend, this time too, about the art team saying that Miller and Jansen they have a bright future in comics ahead of them, and I'd like to see them working together in the future. And well, you know, like the story, the dynamism and excitement that they bring to the story is really compelling. It's not a groundbreaking story idea as a hero's girlfriend or partner is kidnapped and held at an amusement park. So it's not really a case of, wow, that is so shocking. I've never seen anything like that before. But the way it's portrayed, the action, the set pieces, those are terrific. For Daredevil's acrobatics, you may have four or five images of him in the same long panel with varying levels of, Colors or level of you know opaqueness to see the figure. The body angles of the kicks and punches look realistic, but also not impossible. And Miller would eventually get to the unrealistic style of art. But here, this early in his career, he's going towards sort of realistic. Towards lean and flexible and acrobatic. And it looks really good. You get the sense that all of the skills and powers that Daredevil has... And the way it's portrayed, those are heightened. It's a comic book, of course, so it's it's going to be heightened. But it's not crazy. There aren't new muscles that Miller and Jansen have invented. If Daredevil is supposed to represent the best of human physical achievement, that's pretty close to what they've presented here. The way the radar sense is shown is great, too. The concentric circles and all that. It's only shown once here in the issue, but it's used just right. And this whole issue takes place at night, and that plays right into Daredevil's hands, of course, and also into Miller and Jansen's hands. The pacing of the issue is pretty crazy, as fast as it is. The issue is basically one fight scene with a few pages of prologue and epilogue. But even those scenes are taking place right before and right after the fight. So this issue covers maybe a couple of hours at the absolute max. And that compressing of the time obviously drives the pacing to a very fast pace. One thing I don't think was common in 1979 comics was the large number of wordless panels, or in some cases, wordless pages. This is still the era when Marvel was working off the Stan Lee template with lots of words, albeit not words as bombastic as Stan would would have used in the 60s. And so to have panels with a roller coaster where you just have clack, 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 just the sound effect, that's striking. And it's a great change of pace. And a story that moves at breakneck speed, having a few pages with many panels, some with few or no words, it does slow you down a bit. It gives you a chance to catch your breath between the pure action elements of the story. And then you have the one page, maybe the most significant page. The one page of Ben Yurik realizing that Murdoch's childhood nickname was Daredevil. One low-key page. A page with a lot of talking. Stuck in the middle of this issue-long fight scene. And that may be the page that matters the most in the whole sweep of the issue. I don't know much about Roger McKenzie's career as a comic book writer, except that he wrote some horror books early on. I know that over time Miller takes, you know, more and more control of this title, obviously, and Mackenzie was gone from Daredevil after maybe six or seven issues from here. And from Marvel's perspective, it's hard to see that choice, the choice of minimizing Mackenzie's role and leaning heavily on Miller, it's hard to see that as anything but a great idea. It was incredibly successful and Miller's work here, still resonates to this day. My only issue, and it occurs on just the few pages, and I made reference to it, is Turk's accent or slurring or speech impediment, whatever that is. I assume that it's a holdover from prior issues, from prior appearances of that character, but I'm not sure about that. Now, feel free to write me in and school me on Turk and his speech patterns. (laughs) That and maybe bullseyes breakdown at the end when he lets Widow and Daredevil take him. That was a bit convenient, too. But the really good things about the fight and about the end of the fight, those far outweigh that little plot contrivance. Again, those are teeny tiny small complaints over what is, in fact, quite a good and compelling issue. Really good stuff here. Now, for another view on this story, especially from the perspective of a Daredevil expert and mega-fan, I recommend episode 17 of J. David Weeder's Daredevil podcast, but you can just call it Dave's Daredevil podcast, where he covered this issue, including the particular geography of this part of New York City. I believe that episode can be found in the back catalog of episodes on Dave's current podcast feed, The Dave Cave. Well, there are three more stories in this jam-packed, overstuffed magazine of an issue and we do have to get to those. So after this brief promo for another podcast, which is almost as good as this one and occasionally better, we'll be back to look at stories featuring the FF, Hulk, and Iron Man.
3: This is the All Father Odin, and you should be listening to Radio Free Asgard. No, no, that's just not going to work. Let's try this again. This is the evil Loki, and if you hate Thor as much as I do, you should be... All right, let's just try one more thing. Jane Foster here, and you should be... Uh, risen. All right, let's just keep this simple. Hello, everybody. My name is Tom Harris, and I do a podcast called Radio Free Asgard, which airs every Thursday over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. We cover the adventures of Thor, Hercules, and more from ancient times all the way up into the present day. We read old comics and make fun of them. I do ridiculous voices and generally make an ass of myself. So if that sounds fun to you, you should come join us, the only Thor podcast hosted by a true descendant of Odin over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. And we'll see you there.
1: And we're back with the other three stories that appear in this issue. And we'll cover them in the order in which they appear in Marvel Magazine number three, which brings us to Fantastic Four 234, originally cover dated September 1981. The story, The Man with the Power, was written, penciled and inked by John Byrne, or as they put it in the credits, words and pictures. We start with L.R. Skip Collins, an ordinary Joe, a typical middle-aged family man who holds down a regular job at Acme Aglets. Skip lives in an unexceptional suburban home, drives an unexceptional car, and has a wife and son who are a little disappointing to him, and he, you sense that the feeling is mutual. During some time as a military test subject in his past, Skip received the singular superpower that grants his every wish. But being such an unimaginative, ordinary Joe kind of guy, he is completely unaware that he has these powers. When a traffic jam makes him late for work for his job, he turns back the clock a half hour to avoid the jam, completely oblivious to what happened. Skip gets a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to travel to New York, where he sees all the sights, the Statue of Liberty, the Twin Towers. Radio City, Music Hall, and last but not least, the Baxter Building. He's fortunate enough to catch sight of Reed and Sue on the street and decides to follow them and get their autographs. He sees them rescue a young girl from a derelict building due for demolition, just as the building unexpectedly collapses. Reed is convinced that the collapse was no accident, and sure enough, a series of powerful shockwaves rock the city reducing the proud skyscrapers of Manhattan to rubble, which is eerie and a bit uncomfortable. The tremors are felt downtown by The Thing. Across town at the same time, Frankie Ray and Johnny Storm feel the effects as Frankie's apartment collapses underneath them. The Human Torch is able to rescue the other quake victims on the block, but wonders what could have caused earthquakes in a city built on solid bedrock probably getting some uncredited help from Dr. Doom, I'm just saying, Reed discovers that the effects are not just localized, but worldwide, with all the major cities of the world lying in ruins. As Ben tries to hold together a collapsing Brooklyn Bridge, long enough to allow a ship to pass beneath it, Skip suddenly appears and unwittingly helps Ben hold the cables together until the danger has passed. Back at the Baxter Building, Reed reveals that gravity waves that have destroyed most of the cities on the planet, that originate from outer space. And as the FF leaves Earth to investigate, Skip surveys the damage and the destruction and wishes that it hadn't happened. And his powers kick in one final time, restoring all the cities to their former state and exhausting his powers in the process. Meanwhile, in outer space, the FF head out to confront the source of all the devastation, and they see a sight they will not forget. Creatures of the third planet, hear me. I have tracked my enemy here across the boundless reaches of the cosmos. Now, I mean to destroy him and all your puny world as well. I am the living planet. I am EGO! The End Now this is a crazy comic book issue. The Skip Collins stuff is goofy, and it's narrated goofily, and even though the one-last-wish-makes-everything-right ending is a head-scratcher, putting it together with this legitimate extinction-level cosmic being arriving, that's just a weird combination. But I had no idea that ending was coming, obviously, As a loyal acolyte of the rightful ruler of Latviri, I've been very cautious, let's say, about the amount of reading I've done of this particular title. So not knowing that that end was coming, it is dramatic and out of the blue. It's an out-of-nowhere full-page splash of ego. I can imagine the experience of a reader... Reading this for the first time more than 35 years ago because I was reading it with no foreknowledge, no spoilers, no ideas of what was coming. And it was a dramatic ending, that's for sure. But working that top-level threat into what seems to be a weird story about an interesting conceptual character, that is such a misfit. But it's a misfit that I think really works. Skip Collins is the kind of guy I'd imagine seeing in an issue of Astro City or something that references or even deconstructs the idea of heroes. But the idea that Byrne had these two distinct ideas, these two different stories, and decided, what the heck, let's put them in the same issue in the same story. That's so bold, so weird, so wild, so wacky. I gotta say, it kind of worked. That first part about Skip Collins, like I said, that was goofy. But the idea of someone who doesn't know they have a power... That's actually pretty cool. Like when he wishes his house was a little tidier, it becomes a little tidier. But he just assumes his wife did that. And she assumes that he did. It's a brilliant little bit of comic writing. We do have to talk a little bit of architecture here, a little bit of the history of buildings. This is where the Marvel sliding time scale makes things a little wonky. So here in 2018... I read a comic story from 1994, reprinting a story from 1981, which includes a landmark that was destroyed in real life in 2001. But the Marvel sliding timescale being what it is, would set this story after 2001, in the current continuity, and yet... now In the story, when Skip visits the Baxter Building, he's looking at a tour book. ...that notes the construction date of the building as 1961... ...although issue four of Ohatmu... ...puts the date at 1949... ...so to me it's pretty clear that what... Byrne was doing here was giving... ...a shout out... ...to that dark... ...day... ...of comic book history... ...when in 1961... ...FF number 1... ...was published. Obviously... When it comes to rating an FF story, the best ones feature Dr. Noom, which this one does not, so that is a huge drawback. But the second best feature of any possible FF issue is a story that has a greatly reduced role for the FF themselves. And this issue certainly achieves that goal. So good on you, John Byrne, for writing a pretty good FF issue that doesn't heavily feature, you know... The FF. And that brings us to The Invincible Iron Man 117, a book originally cover dated December 1978, making it the earliest or or oldest story in the magazine. That story, The Spy Who Killed Me, was produced by Dave Michelinie, Bob Layton, and John Romita Jr. And for this one, we started at a desk in Tony Stark's penthouse, which we see through the crosshairs of a sniper rifle from across the way the spy master fires and the bullet smashes through the office window and strikes the millionaire playboy in the back of his head content with a job well done as the spy master seldom fails twice the villain runs off but what he doesn't yet realize is that the Man, he quote unquote killed was actually a life model decoy. The real Tony Stark, already garbed in his Iron Man armor, steps out from behind a concealed wall. After examining the remains of the LMD, he flies out the window after Spymaster. He catches up to the villain's getaway hoverjet, only to find the vehicle is on automatic pilot. The real Spymaster is miles away. Tony reflects on the previous evening thinking that this just hasn't been his day. He recalls attending a high society party where he met Bethany Cabe. At the time, he had no idea that he was being secretly watched by a disguised spymaster and has no clue whatsoever what brought the villain back into his life. At Stark International, he discovers evidence of spymaster's actions He encounters him in the computer center, and Spymaster keeps him at arm's length with an odd array of high-tech weaponry. Iron Man continues to pursue him, but Spymaster knocks him off guard by slamming him into a monorail car, which is actually pretty cool. Iron Man gives chase to a fleeing Spymaster who launches a missile at him designed to interfere with his armor's cybernetic circuitry. Iron Man bursts into flames. He dissipates those flames with his built-in foam ducts and flies towards Spymaster, eventually catching up to the villain, grabbing him and hurling him across the facility onto the Stark airfield. This knocks the bad guy unconscious, and Iron Man recovers the stockholder files, which were what Spymaster had stolen from the company computer center. And on the last page, Nick Fury of S.H.I.E.L.D. presides over a joint meeting with NATO with the goal of muscling Tony Stark into relinquishing the rights to his weapons technology. The end. Spoilers for a few issues ahead of this in the Iron Man run, but that's not really Nick Fury. It's another LMD. I guess Dave Michelinie really loved using those in his stories. Now, of course, I do have to comment on one aspect of the business side of the story, I always thought that Stark Enterprises was a publicly held company, meaning that they were on a stock market. I'm pretty sure that issues relating to the stock of Stark have been in the title before, although I guess that could be after this issue. Because if that's the case, if they are a public company on a stock market, then the list of stockholders, which is what Spymaster was hired to steal, would actually be public information. Buying a stock on a stock market is a taxable transaction. So you have to have a name, social security number, and address in order to open a brokerage account and purchase a public stock. And that is a public record. Now, it's possible that at this time, Stark was privately owned, in-universe, meaning not on a stock market. In which case, public disclosure of ownership would not be required by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Sorry about that. (laughs) Even though I'm recording this over my Christmas break, I'm still a finance professor. And no, there won't be a quiz on any of this material. Although it wouldn't be a bad thing if you did remember some of this, you know, just as a life skill. And I have to say, I'm not in love with the Marvel U being this loaded with life model decoys. To me, They would not be any more convincing than a Mission Impossible-style rubber mask. I know that there are general comic tropes, and then specific DC tropes and specific Marvel tropes, but this one from Marvel, not a huge fan. LMDs are plot shortcuts. Before you ask, Doombots, on the other hand, those are totally different. Those are genius-level artificial constructs. Not the same at all. Totally different. Understood? But other than that, and that is a big deal actually, that is, accepting that the entire story jumps off from the killing, quote-unquote, of an LMD, getting past that, everything else is actually pretty good. And routing out our episode here is The Incredible Hulk 316, an issue originally, cover dated February 1986, making this the most recent or newest story in the collection. And that story, Battleground, was scripted, penciled, and inked by John Byrne with additional inks from Keith Williams. To refresh your memory, at the end of last issue, Hulk and Banner had been separated. Banner had collapsed and was rushed to the hospital, and Betty Ross was there looking for him. This one starts at exactly that point. Jennifer Walters, the She-Hulk, arrived at the New Mexico hospital where her cousin, Bruce Banner had been admitted. She was called by Betty Ross as the doctors at the facility needed the next of kin in order to determine what to do now. Betty tells She-Hulk that they have a difficult decision to make that will determine if Bruce will awaken from his coma or not. Meanwhile, reporter Diane Bellamy is live on the location covering the rampage that Hulk has been going on ever since he was freed from S.H.I.E.L.D. custody by Doc Sampson, and what was probably not Doc Sampson's best move ever. With the destruction and the billions of dollars, there appears to be nothing that can stop the Hulk. That is, until West Coast Avengers Iron Man and Wonder Man arrive. While the two Avengers have the element of surprise, they prove no match for a Hulk devoid of Bruce Banner's calming human influence. Hercules and Submariner arrive also to lend their aid. They battle it out with Hulk with no end in sight. Back at the hospital, She-Hulk learns that Bruce is in a catatonic state and has been since the separation. However, the doctor wants to try a new experimental form of psycho simulation that may bring him out of his coma, but he admits that it could have just the opposite effect. He leaves the decision of what to do up to her. Jennifer gives Betty her origin story, talks about how Bruce saved her life. Just then, Doc Samson interrupts the Avengers vs. Hulk battle, explaining how he is responsible for the Hulk's most recent rampage and will not broker any interference in stopping it. This leads to a clash with the four Avengers. However, they notice that as soon as they started fighting Doc Samson, the Hulk appears to have forgotten about them and has just wandered off. With the battle over for a second, Doc Sampson explains his desire to stop the Hulk on his own. He manages to convince the Avengers to give him a chance, pointing out that if they continued fighting the Hulk, they'd level half the state. The Avengers agree to let Samson handle things his way, but warns him that they'll be watching very closely and will step in if Doc fails. She, Hulk, and Betty agree to let Dr. Fisher inject his psychoactive drugs into Bruce, and he suddenly wakes up, struggling as his system begins to normalize. Awake. For the first time after his separation from the Hulk, the first person that Bruce Banner sees is his beloved Betty Ross. The end. Let me make a Hair-based confession, which may explain some of my soft feelings for Doc Sampson. First, for a number of years, I taught college with a ponytail and a borderline mullet. And although I never had green hair, I did teach once with blue hair. And by once, I mean for just one day. Because I lost a bet with a student here's how it happened. I was teaching investing class. Now that used to be a separate class, but it isn't anymore, which is kind of a bummer because I don't do the investing competition anymore. But back then when I taught this class, I participated and any student that beat me in our semester-long stock market competition, any student whose portfolio ended up higher than mine, they got extra credit. No actual stock market winnings, just a few points. I'm not crazy. And one semester, me and one student, John, got out to a big lead over the rest of the class, and it looked like he was going to be the only one to get extra credit. The thing was, he was a really good student and sort of admitted that he wouldn't really need the extra credit, which he was correct about. So he gave up his extra credit points to the next highest placed student in the competition, and instead... He and I just made a bet. And here's the thing about John. In addition to being a pretty good student, he was also a fashionable fellow. And among the new looks he often sported was differently colored hair. So that was the bet. If he beat me on the last day of class, I would sport the hair color of his choice. And he chose blue. So all of that is to say, I look at Doc Sampson and his look kind of brings back pleasant memories to me. The story itself, the guest stars, including She-Hulk, another one of my favorites, and some Avengers, this all worked for me. As far as the future of the title goes, the separation of Hulk and Banner, that's a big deal too. So, like I've said about all three of the other stories I've covered, I enjoyed this Hulk tale, and I look forward to seeing what's gonna happen next. The Verdict. On Marvel Superheroes Magazine number 3, 96 pages of solid Marvel comics. Bob Layton, John Byrne, Frank Miller, Klaus Janssen, David Michelini. Did I mention the 96 pages part? These are reprints of top quality stories and all at a bargain price. This is a total quarter bin steal. I have not read any of these runs before and have really enjoyed all three of these magazines that I've read and I expect... I'll really enjoy the other two as well. Look for those in Episodes 139 and 149. And that wraps up my coverage of Marvel Superheroes Magazine number 3, bringing Episode 129 to a close. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do in Episode 130. I know what I'm going to do between 130 and 131, But during February and March, the network is going to be engaged in a five- or six-week-long mega-crossover event with all of the active shows on the network participating. So if I get in a quarter bin before that starts, we'll be covering Uncle Scrooge Adventures number 20. But depending how that schedule goes... The next episode of this, 130, might be part of that crossover, and I don't want to spoil what we're going to talk about. And if that happens, then Uncle Scrooge will come after. But whichever of those issues I end up covering next, I probably won't be alone. But I can't say any more about that because, spoilers... So, if you have any questions or comments about these issues, the episode, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the Quarterbin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at Relatively Geeky Podcast dot blogspot.com where the podcasts uncovering the bronze age and short box showcase also make their home links to facebook and twitter are there as well feedback for the show is welcome at relatively geeky at gmail.com and if you like what we've got going here please leave a review and a rating in itunes it'll help more people discover the show thanks again for listening
3: Professor!